This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That was when I noticed that the world, we, we had actually gone viral, and I know that that's an overused term, but we really had. It was crazy. We had hundreds of thousands of orders and emails and phone calls, and we couldn't process about 98% of those orders because we were a team of three. Hello and welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Claire Hatton. And I'm Greta Thomas. And we're on a mission to help you achieve your goals. We're all about sharing the secrets of the world's most innovative and pioneering successful women. Hear their uplifting stories and practical advice right here. Yes, right here. And if you're enjoying this podcast, then why not sign up for our newsletter at hello at don'tstopusnow.co and keep listening for this week's latest episode. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode, which we think you're going to find pretty fascinating. That's for sure. Our guest this week is Brianne West, the serial entrepreneur and founder of sustainable cosmetics company Etique. Brianne has a bold and pioneering mission, and that's to rid the world of single-use plastics. It's precisely why she started Etique, which produces all those products we use in our bathroom in solid bar form rather than in plastic bottles. Yes, that's right. From shampoo to moisturizer, Brianne and her company have totally pioneered a game-changing level of sustainability and ethical practices into Etique. Yeah, not surprising. It's called Etique then. Absolutely. This is really a business that walks the talk when it comes to how it operates. And in this episode, you'll learn how Brianne displayed the entrepreneurial gene early, very early, how she's funded her business with two very successful crowdfunding campaigns, and what it takes to crowdfund successfully, what Brianne does to manage her anxiety, and how Huffington Post and Britney Spears changed everything for her business overnight. And we mean everything. And without further ado, enjoy this episode with the focused and truly pioneering Brianne West. Brianne West, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you for having me. Where are you talking to us from right now? Uh, New Zealand, Christchurch, New Zealand, where it's about minus two. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) We're whinging about how cold it is in Australia, but (laughs) we're we're a bit pathetic here in Sydney. That's hardcore. (laughs) Yeah. Why do you people in Canada wouldn't say that? No, no, that's true. No, they're much tougher. <laughs> Sorry, Toronto. <laughs> so, Brianne, a question that we like to ask all of our guests is, if you met someone for the first time, how would you briefly describe what you do for work? Nice and easily, actually. I run a company that exists to rid the world of single-use plastic. Wow, you've done that before, haven't you? 
It's a little grandiose, but, you know, it gets people interested. (laughs) Well, I would certainly be wanting to ask you more questions if we were at a dinner party (laughs) together. And indeed, it's great because I get to ask you more questions. You do. But before we get into that really wonderful purpose that you have, I wanted to go right back to the beginning and talk about your childhood. Mm -hmm. What was your childhood like? I was very lucky. I had a very happy childhood. So I was born in a place called the Isle of Man which is a tiny little country between England and well, Wales and Ireland, sorry. I know it well. You did, Really? Yeah. Well, I don't know it well as in, but I grew up in the UK, so oh, okay. I it, know you, the Isle of Man. Excellent. Most people have no idea what I'm talking about. So I'm, I'm technically <laughs> Manx, but I mean, I've been in New Zealand since I was seven. So Right. You know, okay. I'm a Kiwi, really. Yeah, yeah. My parents moved out of the Isle of Man to New Zealand, essentially, so that I would have greater opportunities. New Zealand seemed like this amazing place of of opportunity, but also this amazing lifestyle, you know, very outdoorsy, very, um, just a really nice lifestyle balance, I suppose. Moved over here when I was seven, got teased mercilessly for my English accent, so very quickly dropped it. You can imagine. Yeah, carried on. I started my first company when I was eight. um, Wow. A little bit out of loneliness because I didn't know too many people at that point. And Um, tell us about that one because I think I've read about it. Are you thinking about the pet detective company? Yes. Yeah. What is a pet detective company? Well, I mean, when you're when you're eight and you're running around Dunedin and McAndrew Bay, you need an excuse to hang out and try and find lost animals. And a, a legitimate business seemed like a good one to me. It was very much just an excuse for me to hang out with my friends and try and find, you know, answers to those lost cat posters. And you know what? I actually did find a cat. But they didn't pay me for it. So how sustainable it was as businesses go. Uh, okay, so the trouble was the business model. Yeah, yeah. So I read that when you were at uni, and I think you were studying biology there, you had started and even sold two other businesses. Is that right? Yeah, but to be honest, that sentence sounds more exciting than it was really because they were both very small. They were really the first proper business, you know, after the pet company, but they were still very, very tiny. They were one or two man bands. One was a typical cosmetics company. So, you know, liquids and stuff in bottles that I ran for a couple of years. And that was really good because it taught me the basics of, of what not to do in the business world in terms of financial management. And it taught me some basic cosmetic chemistry, which I built on for a teak. And the second company was a confectionery company, which was fun and really creative and got to come up with some, you know things like flavors and packaging. And it was really interesting. But the problem with both of those and the reason I sold them is they didn't have a purpose. Their only purpose was something to do and to me and that isn't what gets me up in the morning. They just lost all interest in me very quickly. Interesting, interesting that you could identify that and sort of move on. And so it's probably time to explain to listeners who are not familiar with Atik, your current business, which is going gangbusters. What is Atik and why is it so different to other cosmetic and beauty companies? Typically, the cosmetics industry is pretty hideous. Most people identify the fact that plastic is not recyclable or is not recycled despite being recyclable. So they'll think often of the waste aspect of cosmetics, you know, shampoo bottles, conditioners, all those things come in plastic packaging, which statistically will not be recycled. We've only ever recycled 9% of all the plastic we've ever made globally. So that's one sort of part of it. And that was the focus when I started Atik. But I also believe that business should operate as ethically as possible. And that means everything from how you treat your staff to how you communicate with your shareholders, your environmental impact, of course, but also things like your supply chain and where you source product from and how much you pay those producers. And and I believe everything should be taken into consideration. All your decisions should be made as ethically as possible. So Atik 
we call it the world's most sustainable cosmetics company or lifestyle company because we're branching out a little bit in a few months, not giving too much away. We just try and be a model for how we believe that organisations should operate around the world, both in within the industry and without. So that's we produce solid bars instead of liquid products, which deals with the waste issue. So, you know, shampoo bars, conditioner bars, solid moisturisers, solid face products, cleansers, and everything you can imagine in your bathroom and, and soon to be throughout the rest of your house, we create in a completely plastic-free form. But also the ingredients within, of course, are sustainably produced, sustainably sourced, fair trade or directly trade, which is where you work with the actual producer to ensure they're getting a fair price. We donate 20% of our profit to charity. It goes on and on. We just try and be and consider every single person and every decision we make. And, you know, what we are not perfect, that's for sure, because nobody is, but we are trying very, very hard to be as good as possible and we try and improve every day. And did it start with the kernel of the idea of, hang on, there's a problem with liquid shampoos, I should try and make a solid version? Is that how it all began? Can you sort of take us back to that kind of that first insight? Pretty much. I wasn't actively casting around for a new business idea. Like I said, I just sold those other two. I wasn't really sure what it is I wanted to do and why, but it just annoyed me, if I think about it, that a typical shampoo or conditioner could be up to 95% water, particularly in conditioner. And then we, we package that in a plastic bottle because it's so liquid. And then we ship that around the world because they're made in a, a few spaces around the world. A huge carbon footprint in the freight alone, let alone the plastic. And then we use it in a room full of water. I mean, that's completely illogical. It's because it's obviously cheaper to make a product that is 95% water. And that is where that came from. But that doesn't mean we should continue to do it. There is so much waste involved in that alone. I just thought that was madness. So how could we explore? Yeah, so interesting. I have to ask too, because I'm sure some listeners will go, wow, you've sold two businesses. Were you able to buy a Caribbean island after the selling of businesses? Because <laughs> people have that view, don't they? So probably good to contextualize. I started to take a probably a half a step above bankruptcy. <laughs> oh my goodness. I was not a financially savvy person in my in my very early 20s, and I certainly do not have a Caribbean island now either. <laughs> That's good. Well, we, it's always good to clarify, you know, people talk about selling businesses and I think people automatically assume, hey, bingo, payday straight off. So yeah, <laughs> no. it's a good reality check, isn't it? And, you know, how do you convince, you know, take me, for instance, classic case, I've been a lifelong liquid shampoo user, you know, out of ignorance, practically, I would say now, you know, not even thinking that there was an alternative. So how do you persuade me that holding a, a hard bar that get slippy in the shower. How do you convert people? Two things, really. So only about 2% of the world's population will buy a product based entirely on environmental credentials. So that is not really a mass business. That's not going to have mass change. It's not going to save the 50 million bottles we want to by 2025, right? So those are an easy win for us. So we enter a market by getting others to convince you. So we don't try. We talk about our values. We talk about, we, we share the reviews we get and we share the fact that our products are as good as, and in fact, not overly different to what you would find in a, in a liquid product. And then our customers do it for us. So that 2%, they love the products. They love the values. So they talk about it a lot and they spread to a more mass audience who are perhaps that little bit too suspicious about bottles, uh, bars, and so many people are. And with that sort of assurance and from their friends and family, it's much easier sale. I mean, I have to say, having 
kind of read about it ahead of speaking to you. It was like, it, especially that fact that, you know, shampoos are 90 to 95% water inside the bottle. And as you so beautifully say, <laughs> you then use it in a room that's filled with water in the bathroom. That in itself is kind of a real aha moment for me. And now I think to help grow the business, you you sort out crowdfunding versus perhaps, you know, looking for, you know, angel investors in a more traditional way or money in other ways. So what what led you to do that? A couple of things, really. As a young entrepreneur, you are, well, I read a lot and I heard a lot about the evils and unnecessarily so because not everyone's evil, of course, um, but the evil is about investors and how they, you know, take all your company, take all your decisions and, and you lose control and it's game over. Now, I am a bit of a control freak. And I'm very particular about the way the company operates because that's the whole purpose. So that never appealed to me. I've since learned, of course, that the world isn't quite that black and white and there's wonderful angel investors out there, of course. But at that time, I was keen to avoid a more typical investment structure. But mainly the reason was equity crowdfunding. So these are people who don't buy rewards, they buy actual shares like a share market, is people who cannot afford typically to invest in the share market can do with equity crowdfunding. So we have 352 shareholders and they have made a very, very, very healthy return on their initial investment. So we've done it twice. The first time we did, we raised $200,000 in 10 days off a company called Pledge Me, which is a New Zealand-based equity crowdfunding company. And it was terrifying, but it was very cool. It was um, the most exciting two weeks ever. can imagine. Yeah. Um, and we did it a subsequent time in 2017 and that was amazing because we raised half a million in just over an hour. Gosh. The important thing with crowdfunding is the thing brands have to have is a purpose and a story and they have to really resonate and inspire their crowd. And that's something that obviously we've managed to do. My amazing, amazing team have managed to do to inspire people to join in. Yeah. I was going to ask you what your advice would be for other people thinking of using crowdfunding to source investment. So it sounds as if having a great story and obviously you've got like such deep purpose that telling the story and hitting people's emotions is really compelling. But what other advice would you have? I think you, you're you either a, an option for equity crowdfunding or you're not. There are some types of businesses, I don't know, let's take a law firm, for example, which just will never really be a candidate for equity crowdfunding. It's usually a consumer product. It's usually something people can see themselves using, see themselves within, enjoy enjoy using and enjoy supporting and want to talk about. So it's got to be a, a brand in that way. So you've kind of got to build a very consumer-focused brand from the get-go. You can't build a brand in the in the four or five weeks before you launch an equity crowdfunding campaign and hope that that works. You know, it's more of a long-term plan. Be extremely transparent. I know quite a lot of crowdfunding campaigns have been had to be removed, not just within New Zealand, of course, but because what they put forward, and not necessarily maliciously, but it's been wrong for whatever purpose, whatever reason. Um, so be radically transparent. Be really, really available to the people who want to potentially invest, but you know they've got some concerns, and just produce a really beautiful video, really, really nice IM investment memorandum, and see what happens. Planning is important, but we did our first round with three weeks. In just Crikey. three weeks, I highly recommend that, that you don't do that. Give yourself more time because <laughs> it was a little stressful. Why Why was it just three weeks? Was there a cash flow crisis at the time? or I'm not a make a decision and then fanning around for a while. I make a decision and get it done. Yeah. 
And anyone who has raised money will tell you that capital raising is incredibly distracting and it is to the detriment of your business quite often, particularly mm-hmm. when there's a small team. And we just didn't have time to be doing this for months on end. One eye on the business and one eye on, on raising capital. It's not how I wanted to run a company. I wanted both eyes on the business. So I wanted to do it as quickly as possible. But I would suggest maybe two months rather than three weeks. <laughs> yeah. I really respect your ability to make decisions so quickly. Has that always been a skill that you've had or is this something that you've had to develop over time? I would argue sometimes it's not a skill so much as a liability. (laughs) Why do you say that? I'm quite impulsive. I hate planning. I've come to grudgingly accept that it's important in some aspects, but I, I dislike just meetings and planning for the sake of things, which I find an awful lot of the bigger businesses rely on. Um, I think it's why they're often quite slow in their execution of things. But also just because I make a decision quickly, it doesn't necessarily mean it's a good one. And the only reason I've been successful is because of people around me. A teak is not one person. And I'm not, I'm, you know, even in my personal, I'm only a success because of the people around me who have made tactful suggestions that perhaps that's not the best decision or have talked with me over something we wanted to do and we've always thought no we'll either delay it or we'll do it slightly differently or or whatever so I like action I don't like just talking about something but that must be tempered with arguably more experienced people who've done things before and I had to learn what did you learn and how did you get better I guess it's a long-term process isn't it it's experience you know other people being right I naturally think or thought that I knew the best for my company because I built it, right? And it's it's kind of a, a standalone version of my values of how the world should be. And I therefore assumed that I would know what's best for it. I don't. Other people are much more knowledgeable about a variety of factors than I am. And I just, I guess, over time, I realized that. And you build up trust in other people. Yeah. It's a real journey, isn't it? I'm really curious and interested to know a bit more about your business model because, you know, I know sustainability and obviously reducing plastic is very, very important to you and you go to all sorts of lengths to do that. Can you actually explain a little bit to our listeners what you actually do do in order to make it as sustainable as possible? Sure. Uh, Well, it's probably quite a complicated answer, but So there's the products and then there's the actual business. So from a product perspective, we ensure that our products have the smallest footprint possible. Now, there's lots and lots of statements out there, you know, it does no harm to the planet, you know, this does that and you leave nothing behind. But unfortunately, everything we make and everything we consume has some kind of impact on the planet. So our our decisions are all based on the lightest possible footprint we can have. So our packaging, of course, is completely compostable. So you can either bury into your garden, pop it in a plant pot or pop it in the compost and it will biodegrade naturally and produce components for future new life. That's 101. Ingredients that goes within it must be healthy. They must not have any concerns that are backed by science associated with them. Uh, They must not have been tested on animals. They must be vegan and it goes on and on. And then of course the sourcing. So they must be sustainably sourced and produced so we don't use palm oil derivatives for example because the palm oil industry unfortunately at the moment as it stands cannot guarantee sustainability and when we work directly with our producers so we work for example in Rwanda for our moringa oil we get it directly from a a women's cooperative in Rwanda which is a really nice partnership we've got lots of those for things like coconut oil and cocoa butter for example 
So that's sort of the product. And then there's the actual business side of things, which is where the 20% of profit goes to donations so that we can support other people who are doing wonderful things around the world with grants and things. Um, we are, the way we treat our employees, that's very important. So we're a living wage accredited at the very, very minimum, and no one is actually paid anywhere near this anyway, but at the very, very minimum, our team are paid a living wage. So not the minimum wage, but the living wage, which is what the New Zealand government has determined is the absolute minimum someone can be paid to have a decent lifestyle, you know, to do the absolute minimum. So we're, we make sure we are living wage certified. We're also a B Corp. I don't know if you had mm. know much about B Corps. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. So um, we are the highest certified B Corp in New Zealand and we're actually recertifying this year. Great. And what compromises have you had to make then in order to be able to do that? None. Well, so, well, actually, that's not true. The average profit margin in the cosmetics industry, gross profit, is about 85%. Ours is less. Yeah, right. But not to the point where we're financially unsustainable. We are very, very financially sustainable and in a great place because it's unnecessary to make the amounts of profits that these cosmetic companies do. Incredible. And still financially sustainable and all our shareholders are happy. So it is possible to operate ethically and financially sustainably. And that's what I take is about. Yeah, and that's what the world needs to hear. Totally. And you know, I, I just want to move it to how you sort of began expanding outside of New Zealand because uh, I think you you started selling internationally because you got some well you got some really great PR, didn't you? Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that? I can't actually claim any real credit for it. I was in Hawaii for a women's leadership conference, and it was an amazing two weeks. Got to meet some incredible women doing some amazing things from around the world. And topped it off with a little interview with a Forbes reporter who uh, just wrote a very small piece about Atik and me and what it was like being a woman in business and a bit of a fluff piece. And I did think a lot of people would read it and it would get, you know, we would blow up. Well, um, not many people did read it in the end, but that's, that's okay. About two weeks later, someone from the Huffington Post got in touch with me and said, I've just reposted your story and added a bit on the HuffingtonPost.com. And um, that was when I noticed that the world, we, we had actually gone viral. And I know that that's an overused term, but we really had. It was crazy. We had hundreds of thousands of orders and emails and phone calls. And we couldn't process about 98% of those orders because we were a team of three. Oh, my in a tiny unit. You know, we were making 50 bars a day. There was just no way. And that was what catapulted us onto the world stage. How exciting. And wasn't there something about Britney Spears uh, posting as well? Yeah, yeah. So that that probably about a week after that Huffington Post article, because it was so popular, that article really did seem to be read by everybody, she posted on her Facebook page. And my mother messaged me or texted me at 7 o'clock in the morning and said, um, you might want to have a look at Britney Spears' Facebook page because she shared a teak. And I said, <laughs> of course she hasn't. That'd be ridiculous. Britney Spears doesn't know who we are. And she was dead right, actually. Wow. So and it was um, a hell of a shock. What and was your mum doing? Same. What was your mum doing on Britney Spears's Facebook page? <laughs> Not a clue. I assume a friend. <laughs> <laughs> I never thought she was a fan, but there you go. Who knows? <laughs> there you go. So what happened? How did your business cope? So we were ready to a degree at that point for international expansion. We first made some good hires and one of them being my COO, and he very much taught us the first thing you do. You know, you, you go to these places and you find partners, and that's what's made the difference. A lot of people will try and operate their business initially and develop relationships over, over the phone, and look, there's absolutely a place for that. 
but after you've developed, you need to go over there and meet people. You need to go and talk to people, find out what they really like, you know, go out for dinner with them and, and get to know them as a person to make sure if you want to jump into bed with that person as a, as a partnership, because you always want a partnership, whether it be a distributor or a PR company, you want it to be a long-term thing, you know? Did you have to, presumably you had to sort of upscale manufacturing capability as well, though, in terms of just the output of the product? Yes, we did. Uh, yeah. We were okay for a couple of months, but it became obvious that, again, this demand wasn't really going anywhere because you don't want to just assume that demand will be maintained off the back of one article. But once True. it was pretty clear that this was something that was long-term, we began to look around for a new factory. So we built a custom-built lab in Christchurch that would last us for five years. We moved in and then outgrew it in six months. Oh, wow. Six months? Now we operate out of a couple of different factories. Uh-huh. Wow. Have there been moments along the way where you've sort of worried about, oh my goodness, I'm not sure we're going to survive this challenge? Oh, of course. Well, I've never, I've never actually thought, no, we won't survive it. Um, that's not true. But I'm probably quite optimistic, maybe again, a little bit naive there. There has um, been huge challenges. Manufacturing, scaling it the, um, into the, the factories it's in now was a challenge that's taken a lot of engineers because this is a product that is not made how we make it anywhere else in the world, everything else in the market is very different just in terms of manufacturing process, but ingredients and in, in supply chain, all those things. So it's been a massive challenge to get to scale. And that took 18 months. And I've always believed that there is a solution to every problem. It just may not be in the way you expect. And I believe and I have trust and faith in the people around me. Would you say you have quite a healthy risk appetite and low sort of anxiety? I'm an incredibly anxious neurotic person. Anyone okay. who has met me will tell you that. Yep. But oddly enough, I, do, I, also, I also scuba dive and ride horses, which are some of the most dangerous sports you can do. So um, <laughs> I'm obviously a bit strange. But no, I'm, 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 I am an anxious person and I do freeze about things, but I also don't, I don't not do something because it makes me nervous. And I do have a healthy risk appetite. And that's where other people come in. I mean, I'm not going to jump into something I probably would have done a few years ago. I'm much more calculated in the risks I take now. Um, but again, that goes down to the people around me who've taught me what a good risk is and what, what it isn't yeah. and how to evaluate the risk. So how do you manage the sort of the anxiety? How do you ma- avoid becoming, you know, a long-term worrier sort of thing or staying awake at night? What, what do you do? Honestly, I don't know. I don't really do anything. Probably having a horse is very helpful. Yeah. I did used to be much more neurotic and much more fretty about things and I would stay awake at night, but I guess over time you just either, either I have a very high stress threshold and don't know it or um, it's part of becoming a resilient business person is you eventually get used to all the challenges that come with running a business and you're like, right, well, that isn't the end of the world. I've done something like this before. We'll get over it again. Yeah, right. And I want to change the subjects a little bit now because, you know, obviously we're very much focused on women who are innovating and you know, pioneers and original thinkers. So if you were thinking about starting your own business, what would your advice be having gone through the whole process? A variation upon just do it, probably. Sorry, Nike. Like I said, a lot of people will spend a lot of time waiting and seeing if what they are thinking of is worth doing. So I was just going to talk to some people and a variety of people, so not just your friends, but maybe people, I don't know, whether you have access to a university or a school or or your workplace, you know, be careful who you talk to and be judicial in the information you give out. But, you know, what do you think about this? Is this is this worth doing? Is this something you might like? Get some basic market intel. Start developing, if it's a product, start developing it, give it a go, you know, create a website, get some feedback online, just give it a go. 
Nice. And what advice do you have about, you know, people maybe not feeling confident that they could, you know, start their own business and therefore run their own business, than that confidence? I still don't feel confident running my own business. The idea that anyone out there feels 100% confident and sold on what they're doing at any point in time is probably untrue. Bar a select few people, most people have underlying insecurities, but they just hide it. Um, which is kind of a shame because then you feel, you know, people who haven't done it before feel that perhaps they're not right for it because they don't feel absolutely secure. But I um, never ever really feel 100% secure in anything I do. Like I said, I'm quite anxious and neurotic and that's really common. And when you talk to more people who are in business or have their own, have started something of their own, you will realize they feel the same way. So it, it shouldn't preclude you from doing something if you're frightened of it. It should give you fire to go and do it. So, Would you say you role play being CEO to some degree in order to be CEO? Uh, Not intentionally. I just don't think I do the CEO role as perhaps you'd imagine a CEO would be. I'm probably a little bit more collaborative. I probably just don't do things. And I'm, I'm relatively open about being insecure about something with certain people. And we have, we'll have a chat about it and make a decision accordingly or, but I have also got a lot more confident over, over time and I'm certainly a different person to what I was even a year ago. Comes with experience, unfortunately. You just <laughs> experience only comes with doing something. And I, I love that you have surrounded yourself with people and built relationships that are as safe as that because I think it's so important for people to be able to be open about when they're feeling vulnerable or you know uncertain or insecure because just simply by saying it it kind of helps get perspective I find and that it actually starts to you know build the bridge to find crossing over to finding a more sort of solid ground and more confidence to proceed when you share that with people totally yeah absolutely does the more the more you talk to people the more you realize you oh you're not the only one who thinks that way or feels that way about something yeah, fantastic. Tell me, what does a typical day for Brianne West look like? Don't have one. <laughs> I really don't. Prior to the outbreak of COVID, I would be traveling probably two, maybe three weeks out of four pretty constantly. So I'd be somewhere around the world. For those who are wondering about my sustainability about that, I hear you about the travel aspects, but I believe that the good we're doing outweighs the bad. And we also double offset all our travel when we are a carbon neutral company. As for a typical day now, I can't travel so much. Um, domestic, going around and seeing customers domestically, going around and cementing some relationships, do a lot of talking to people and just making sure the team's happy. I um, manage probably a lot of the brand and marketing here. We don't have a CMO, which is probably atypical, but mm. I really like having that hands-on relationship with our customers probably more so than maybe a typical business. And I think that's really rewarding. But I don't have a typical business. I spend a lot of time on email. Whether that's practical and useful is debatable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a wonderful tool, but also the bane of our life. Totally. And how do you actually prioritize your time? Do you have any routines or tools that you use? Or I hate routine. I really am probably not the person to talk to about these things because I probably don't manage my time very well. I have a, again, the team is very good at helping me organize and do the things I need to do. I have a lot of lists. I'm a big fan of lists. Um, I have Evernote on all of my devices to make sure that everything I need to do gets done. But I'm not great at following, you know, I don't get up at 5 a.m., do a go for a run and then go and, and have a, a breakfast of, of however many pieces of fruit. And, and then I don't do those things that you're <laughs> supposed to do to be successful. It's, it's not me. I don't like routine. 
Yeah, but that's great. That's so wonderful it's and so refreshing wonderful. to hear because yeah. you know, you're like every normal person. Exactly. <laughs> um, I do think it's a little demoralizing to read those uh, 10 things all successful people do. And it's also nonsense because I know hundreds of successful people in, in whatever way they chose to be successful and none of them do any of those things. Absolutely. Some people love routine and some people don't. And it's no indication of whether you'll be quote unquote successful or not. No, no. And it, and it sounds as if actually you've got, you've actually do have lots of tools that you use in order to help yourself. Probably without realizing it. Yeah. And have you found managing your energy harder during COVID-19? Um, no. Uh, again, I really do put a, I think a big chunk of that is due to the fact I have, a, I have animals. Animals are my source of, of stress release. They are, they are the way I feel better, you know, just spending time with my horse mm. will make the world feel all right again. Because look, at the moment, things are overwhelming. They are very bad in parts of the world. It is a distressing, awful, awful time for a lot of people. So many people have lost their jobs, businesses, homes. It's really, really, it can be really overwhelming on top of everything else. You know, the climate crisis, on top of everything else that is going on, <laughs> the world is um, depressing, mm. shall we say. And um, I understand a lot of people find it very hard to manage and it does get on top of me at times, um, and I do find it hard on occasion, but the majority of the time I focus on the good. So I, I don't typically read the news. Um, I stopped doing that about a year ago because I found that it was, it was severely upsetting me. So I focus on the good things, like little good stories you see around the place, um, focus on doing good, and I find those things give me energy as opposed to, some might say I'm avoiding reality, but I'm actually perfectly aware of reality. I just don't dwell on it. Yeah, you know, I I think that that's really really important for all of us. Brianne, we're we're getting close to the end of our time, but a question we ask our guests normally is what advice they'd give their thirty year old selves. But you know, in your case, you're still so close to thirty. I think you're just in your early thirties, aren't you? I am. So, <laughs> so I think we better say in this case, what advice would you give your twenty five year old self? Probably back in twenty five, I was neurotic. I'm more neurotic and concerned. I was more concerned about the way the world was going in terms of, again, the climate crisis, pollution in general, and the way we were destroying our planet. So I guess I would say there's more good than bad out there. And whilst it may seem overwhelming some of the time and that the world is a is a bad place, there are people are more good than bad. You are capable of way more than you think you are, and you are not an idiot. You might say stupid things and you might fail at things, but it doesn't mean that you are stupid or that you are a failure. And I think those things are important for everybody to realise, regardless of age, really. Absolutely. I, I felt things very deeply when I was 25. I mean, I, I do to a degree now, but what yeah. I felt was was truth in my mind back then. And now it's now I can separate feelings from reality. That perspective. I think that's fantastic advice. And as you say, it's ageless in a way, for sure. Thinking of advice... What's the best advice you've ever been given? Oh, so many pieces of advice. I am very lucky. I am surrounded by people who are full of good advice. So this is a tough one. But there's something I say to everybody because it's relevant to people who want to start something of their own is just because you are surrounded by experts in some field doesn't mean you have to take everything they say on board. So mentors are there to mentor you. They're not there to make decisions for you. So if you don't like a piece of advice you've been given and it fundamentally goes against your gut, you don't have to do it. If that mentor gets cross that you don't do it, that you didn't do it, then they're probably not the mentor for you. So people are there to help you, to help you do you. They're not there to make you into carbon copy versions of themselves. 
I love that. I love uh, the uh, help you do you because that's right. We're all running our own race. We're all such individuals. Brian West, it's been so fantastic learning more about Etique and your story. How can listeners who are still curious find out more about you and Etique? Best thing is probably etique.com, E-T-H-I-Q-U-E.com. And that means ethical in French, doesn't it? It does. Perfect uh-huh. name. <laughs> it is. Yes. I think I think it seems from all we've heard that you are you've built a company that really walks the ethique and the ethical talk and we wish you all the very best and thank you so much for joining us today. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. Thanks Brianne. I'm blown away by the purpose behind the business Brianne's created, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. You know, from the trouble they go to sourcing products directly, you know, Rwanda and all that sort of thing, to ensuring their packaging is compostable, to being a B Corp and a carbon neutral business, it really is very, very impressive. Yeah, I agree. You know, and I think as we entered the initial COVID-19 shutdowns a few months back, there was a lot of talk about the opportunity to reinvent business and how they operate. And imagine if more businesses were run not with maximum profit as their goal, but sufficient profit whilst caring for people and planet at the same time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It would be so good if more companies followed this sort of approach. I was also really impressed how open Brienne is about the importance of having older, more experienced and knowledgeable people on her team and also her refreshing honesty about her anxiety and also not having a routine. That was classic. Yeah, I love that. Well, that's this episode done and dusted. Stay tuned next week for another mini episode and have a great week. And don't forget to make sure you stay in the know as we share new episodes and tips and advice on our weekly email to sign up now at don'tstopusnow.co. Ciao for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.